Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Martin Arnold, the FT's Banking Editor. Joining me is Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent, Harash Masoodi, our M&A correspondent, Alistair Gray, the US banking correspondent, and Omar Ali, UK financial services leader at EY. This week, we'll be discussing what's behind a big management shakeup at Goldman Sachs. We'll ask why more banks are coming forward to warn about the impact of Brexit on their UK operations. We'll look ahead to the next showdown between Wells Fargo and its investors. And we'll ask how the Bank of England plans to modernise its payment systems. So starting with Goldman Sachs, which this week announced a big reshuffle in the top management at its investment bank. Arash Masoodi, our M&A correspondent, is here to explain what all this means. So what did they announce, Arash, first of all? Well, it's a multi-pronged announcement. One of our rival papers called it the biggest change in the investment bank in the last decade at Goldman Sachs, quite dramatically. But effectively, it all stems from Gary Cohn's departure, the number two at Goldman Sachs, to go join the Trump administration, which caused a ripple effect of moves with Harvey Schwartz moving jobs and then David Solomon leaving the investment banking division to go have a bigger job. So what Goldman's effectively done is... They have always three competing co-heads in the sort of Goldman Sachs cats-in-a-bag survival game. And with Solomon's departure, they've announced that one of their star U.S. and actually formerly London-based bankers, Greg Lemkow, will join the investment banking division heads based in New York. Greg's sort of a TMT banker, Mm -hmm. has been involved in a lot of these major transactions. And then Mark Nachman, who is actually head of what they call the financing group, which sort of deals with everything they do in equities and debt is actually relocating from New York. He's German. He's relocating from New York to London. And what that means is, effectively, Richard Node, who is the current CEO of Goldman Sachs International, a vice chairman at the bank, and one of the investment banking heads, is relinquishing that title. So is he being sidelined then, Richard Nod? I think, unfortunately, at Goldman Sachs, the word sideline doesn't exist. They often just magically change positions and they either leave and retire or they go on to focus more on operations in different parts of the world. So in some ways, he's got more power because he's no longer co-head of Europe, Middle East and Africa as he was with Michael Sherwood. But yeah. Michael Sherwood retired recently. So Richard Nod's been made the single co-head of that region. It, so in theory, in a more sense, powerful. I think if you take a very New York rather than London-centric view of what Goldman Sachs International has achieved, had a remarkable run under Michael Sherwood, Woody, uh, as he's known, But ultimately, last year was a sort of very difficult year. You had the Libya trials stemming from potentially very dodgy dealing with the sovereign wealth fund there. You had the BHS scandal, which was horrific front page news for Goldman Sachs, which they were at the heart of. Brexit, they backed the wrong horse on that as well. backed the wrong horse on Brexit. There's the 1MDB scandal. I mean, you name it, in international finance and trouble, Goldman Sachs International was there. Not as the trusted advisor, but as the source of negative attention. So I think if you're sitting there in New York and you're Lloyd Blankfein, and you're watching this, you're like, "Mm, this is not working for me. So 
I suspect all of this is rippling from these things and it's being presented in a very sort of Goldman Sachs classic manner. Yeah. One thing I think Node's departure from the investment banking division signifies is that they're trying to re-energize the European M&A platform, which I found certainly in the last few months to be sort of looking shaky. Mm. And so they've promoted FX de Malman, a sort of lifer at the firm who's been there 24 years. He's done like every job you can imagine. He's now been given this title of chairman of investment banking division, which in Goldman speak doesn't necessarily mean that it's more senior to the heads of the investment bank, but it's just title, which he will share with Karen Cook, who's another one of their major grandees in the M&A world in Europe. So I think this is all an effort to re-energize the European platform from our perspective in London and from New York's perspective, potentially give some younger guys a chance and also shake up after couple yeah. of years of trouble. So they're looking to freshen up in Europe and also yeah, reshuffle some of the cards, bring in some younger people. Interesting. Thank you, Arash. Switching to Brexit, the warnings from big banks and other financial services companies about plans to move jobs and activities out of the UK because of Brexit are coming thicker and faster than ever before. EY, the consultancy, has found that more than a quarter of the 220-odd largest UK financial services firms that it tracks have said they will do this. And that's an increase of more than 50% in four months and follows statements from the likes of Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Chase and Deutsche Bank in the past couple of weeks. Joining me to discuss what's going on is Omar Ali, UK financial services leader at EY. Omar, the pace of these announcements from big financial services groups about the impact of Brexit is picking up noticeably. Why do you think that is? That's exactly right. And I think the reasons for it are pretty self-evident. All firms are focused principally on ensuring that they are able to continue to service their clients from April 2019, from the moment the UK could exit the EU or likely to exit the EU. And clearly, from a risk mitigation perspective, there are a few central assumptions that firms are working to. Firstly, that there may not be continued access to the EU post-March 2019. And secondly, that there is no transition or an implementation period, i.e. the cliff edge that has been talked about. That obviously drives activities. And of course, that is exacerbated by the request which has come from the PRA a couple of months back where they have requested all firms to develop and submit their contingency plans back to the regulator. So all of this is creating a level of activity. And for those firms that have a need to create an option, they will need to create EU entities or ensuring if they already have EU entities that they have the right permissions in case there is no deal that provides continued access. And of course, what our research is also showing is that there is no single EU location that is becoming the choice for firms. And that highlights for us the difficulties in trying to find any location that can replicate what exists in the UK and in the city in particular. Mm. And as your research um, pointed out, it seems as though most of the firms that have made public statements on this have said that they would prefer the status quo to continue and they want to move initially at least as few jobs and activities out of London as possible. But they are having to prepare for the worst, especially as Theresa May has already said that there will be no membership of the EU single market once Brexit happens. And whilst the UK government has talked about the need for an implementation period after the two-year 
Article 50 negotiating period finishes, we don't know if that's going to happen or when it will be agreed to. So there is a lot of uncertainty around. What I was going to ask you is, as the firms draw up these contingency plans, Omar, is there a temptation for some of them to start putting those into action sooner rather than later? The contingency plans and the announcements that we have seen is driven less by politics, but by the sheer fact of the timetable. Ostensibly, firms will have 18 months to get plans in place, teams readied, systems and controls set up, locations selected. That isn't a lot of time. There are lengthy processes and large parts of the process is not in the control of firms because they have to ensure that regulatory approvals and the permissions are appropriately set up. You know, what firms want, and people have been very clear about this from the outset, is continued access. And of course, the fact that we are equivalent right now should hopefully help in ensuring that we do continue to get that, irrespective of whether we are in the single market or not. They don't want any cliff edge. And the ideal would be a transition and implementation period that allows firms to put these plans into place properly and ensure that their clients continue to get served. And then the third is that they want to continue to have access to talent. You asked about the value and the advantages of London and the city more broadly. They are very well spelt out already. And the UK is the world's leading global financial services centre, but a key part of that is relying on having access to the best people from across the world. That's a big worry, isn't it? Because Theresa May only this week has been talking about recommitting to getting net immigration below 100,000 into the tens of thousands, which is a target the Tory party has had for seven years and has failed to get anywhere near hitting. But the fact that she's repeating that again in an election where Brexit is the number one issue does suggest that she's determined to try and hit that. And that really could affect some financial services firms and their ability to hire from outside the UK? Well, the UK attracts talent from all over the world, not just the EU. And my hope, my belief is that that will continue because it is a very attractive place to talent. And many of those who make UK financial services so successful are indeed from Europe. And the hope is that the question of the future status of current EU employees can now be taken off the table as soon as possible, leaving firms to focus on the other areas of their Brexit planning, You know, in particular deciding on their structure, the shape, where they will play, how they will service their customers and generate sufficient returns to make what is clearly something firms would rather not have to deal with, something that is a bit more palatable. Mm. Omar, final question and a one-number answer from you, please, if you can. In a worst-case scenario, so hard Brexit, cliff edge, etc., how many jobs do you think will be lost in uh, the UK financial services industry? There are lots and lots of different ranges out there. They are all clearly predicated on different assumptions being made in terms of the shape and nature of the deal. Do you think my it's tens of still, thousands or hundreds of thousands? Well, my hope is still it won't get to that because we will be able to create a deal that ensures that UK yeah. financial services continues to be such an important contributor to the overall UK economy, but not just the UK economy. UK financial services is an asset for the EU and there is no reason why that can't continue post the UK leaving the European Union. Omar Ali, thanks very much for joining us. Now turning to Wells Fargo, the scandal-plagued US Bank's Investor Day, which is taking place on Thursday, should be a more refined affair than the rather aggressive annual general meeting where investors registered pretty serious protest votes against most of the board. 
but this time it's invite only and will still be closely watched, not least because they are constantly telling investors, we'll tell you more about our strategy at the Investor Day. And we are expecting all kinds of announcements from the company, such as cost-cutting measures and their strategy for rebuilding the bank's reputation. Joining us on the line from New York is Alistair Gray, our US banking correspondent. Alistair, what is the mood like among investors? What was it like at the annual meeting where you were, I think? And, And what are you expecting from this investor meeting this week? Well, I've been at quite a few of these annual meetings now, and I've never come across anything remotely like the event in Florida last week. To say the security was heavy is an understatement. Uh, They had armed police in the room, angry protesters being hauled out by heavies. It's understandable given the level of anger that's been generated by this now notorious scandal. The protesters really were um, either individual shareholders or um, small activist groups, clearly, you know, having the biggest fund managers behaving that way. And as you say, the uh, Investors Day is invite only, so it should be less violence, shall we say. But um, may well be some rather pointed questions. Yeah. Um, what are they most interested in? Is it about issues of culture and conduct and behaviour? Or is it about financial performance? Because there are questions about Wells Fargo's financial performance as well, particularly on costs, I think. Both. Yeah. I mean, I suppose, first of all, investors will be wanting to get more clarity on the financial impact of this scandal. First of all, on revenues, accounts being opened by customers have been dropping a lot in the region of 40% year on year for a while. Now, that isn't actually necessarily as bad as it might sound because this is a bank that's got 24 million accounts. That's primary accounts, people who are using them regularly. 7.5 million credit cards. The openings don't account for a, a huge proportion of the overall group revenue. But the longer this goes on, the bigger impact it has. At first, it seemed like the bank could ride through those sharply lower account openings, but the scandal erupted back in September. So people are wanting to know more about actually what is this going to cost you in terms of revenue. The other thing is that the bank has previously indicated that that's in large part because they've eased off on the marketing push. You know, they, they felt it's been bad PR to go out and try and aggressively win customers when they've been done for fraudulently opening accounts. But it's clear that there's more to it than that because they've recently begun marketing again and still accounts opens have been coming down. So there's clearly been an underlying reputational fallout. And investors will want a number yeah. on that. And also in costs, I mean, these have been ticking up. They rose 6% in the last quarter, partly because of the legal fallout from dealing with this scandal, bringing in lawyers, consultants and so on. But costs have been rising at Wells Fargo for a while And unlike many of their peers, they've actually largely resisted an aggressive branch closure program. They've still got more than 6,000 branches across the U.S. The former CEO, John Stumpf, always said that you need a heavy branch penetration. But you think the new guy might be uh, less attached to that? There's increasing expectation that they're going to pair back the branches just a few months or a few weeks after he took the job. The new CEO, Tim Sloan, said he was going to cut about 400, which is quite a small proportion, but there's increasing expectation that he might ramp that up this week. So what about the cultural issues? Tell us about what the big questions are there, Alistair. So they've scrapped aggressive targets for sales staff that apparently led thousands of employees to resort to fraud. But cross-selling was so 
the bank had been vaunting it for so long. You know, this metric of um, every customer has at least six products with us. And if that's not the story anymore, then what is the story? Mm. They have set out things that, you know, that we're going to replace it with deep, long-lasting relationships. But um, I think Wall Street needs a bit more than that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's shrinking. I mean, this bank is, I think the, the response at the moment, Tim yeah. Sloan, the new CEO's response seems to be that it's shrinking whilst searching for a new strategy. It'll be interesting to see what they say to investors. Alistair, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And finally, turning to the Bank of England, which has just come out with its blueprint for updating the UK payments infrastructure. And in particular, the Bank of England is going to take back control of the so-called CHAPS payment system, which handles very high-value payments. Uh, In total, it handles about £500 billion of daily payments like mortgages and salaries every day. So this is a hugely important part of the British financial infrastructure. Emma Dunkley, you're here to explain what's going on. Well, as you say, the Bank of England has unveiled its plans for the new RTGS. The idea being that it bolsters the resilience of the system, but also paves the way for greater competition and innovation within the UK's payments industry, ultimately for the better of the UK economy. So it's worth explaining, I guess, what RTGS actually is. And as you say, it's the main payment settlement infrastructure in the UK. The biggest banks have accounts with RTGS so that they can settle payments between themselves and over payment systems such as CHAPS via the Bank of England, who acts as a sort of intermediary. And they would argue that this ensures greater oversight of money flow and liquidity and ultimately helps boost stability. Wasn't there a big problem with RTGS three years ago, and that's what's prompted all of this. Indeed, RTGS went down temporarily in October 2014, and part of this issue relates to CHAPS, the system that is used to make large payments between banks for things such as house purchases. This went down temporarily and affected the whole RTGS system and actually delayed some people's house purchases, so it had an effect on the end consumer. Mm, and as a, nine hours, I think. It was terribly embarrassing for, <laughs> for the uh, bank, wasn't it? Terribly embarrassing and potentially hugely costly and indeed put the spotlight on just how serious this RTGS failure is to the wider stability of the UK's financial system. So as a result, the Bank of England is now proposing that rather than have CHAPS, a separate company, run this large payment system, in fact, the Bank of England is now planning to run this alongside its RTGS settlement system, which underpins the settlement of these payments. So taking it over from its current owners, who are the main banks in the UK. And there's a competition element here too, isn't there, which is that they're looking to bring in more non-bank payment companies to give them direct access to the RTGS system. There is. So at the moment, a lot of the new payments companies that are emerging or the new banks that are cropping up, the so-called challenger banks, can only gain access to some of the payment systems and ultimately the RTGS settlement system via an incumbent bank such as Barclays or HSBC. So a lot of the new banks are offering their customers payment services by going through one of the large banks, which is arguably slower in terms of the services they can offer and also costlier because they have to pay them a fee. So the Bank of England is now offering to open up its RTGS settlement system so that these new players have direct access in an attempt to make their entry to the market smoother, less costly, and allow them to offer more efficient services to consumers, with the overall aim of boosting competition in the retail banking market. Great. Emma, thank you very much. 
That's it for this week. All that's left to do is to thank Emma, Alistair, Arash and Omar for their contributions and thank you for listening. Remember you can keep up to date with all the latest banking stories at ft.com banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.